0: Well, I want to thank you for being here and uh, you know I've say I've said this often. I know there's a lot of churches that you could choose to worship at and people you could worship with. So I'm always thankful that you are worshiping with us. And I want to encourage you to uh, to really be ready for this sermon. You ready? So look at me for a minute. I know you're turning your bibles open to Luke 6, but um but I really want you to look at me for a minute because I've got to get you ready for this sermon. This is going to be a hard one. Your flesh, my flesh, that unredeemed nature, that part that God is even right now redeeming through the power of his word, and the indwelling power of his spirit, our flesh is going to recoil at this sermon. It's going to feel like you've got a 20-ton weight on you, and your knees spiritually are going to buckle, and you're going to wonder, could this be right? Is this possibly even fair to ask this of, of us this is going to be very difficult and it's going to be countercultural the world preaches a very different message than what Jesus is going to preach that we're going to look at today it is impossible now are you hearing this because without this statement you're not going to get the full force of this sermon it is impossible to make disciples of christ if we do not love persuasively you cannot do it you will never be able to fulfill the great commission if you do not learn by the power of god's grace along with me to love persuasively and we saw that two weeks ago remember pastor matthew opened this uh, this worship service with those words love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another by this, by how we love one another. All people will know that you are my disciples if, and that's a conditional statement, if you have love for one another. Today we're going to turn the direction. We're going to look not within the church like they did two weeks ago, like Jesus taught two weeks ago. We're going to look outside the church and now listen here's where it gets immediately heavy here's where you're going to feel the weight how well do we love those who set themselves against us See we're going to recoil from this I don't really know, I don't really even know how we can't recoil from this because it's so contrary to how we live how our culture lives But it is crucial that we yield to these commands of Christ. For we cannot accomplish this great commission unless we do. So here's what I'm inviting you to do. We sang for our souls. We commanded our souls to bless the Lord. You're familiar with that song, 10,000 Reasons. Well, now you can command your soul. Did you know you can do this, brother and sister? You can command your soul to yield to God. So we're going to take hold of our hearts, we're going to force them to receive these words of Jesus and trust them. This is a sermon that Jesus preaches, Luke chapter 6, and I'm going to teach you several things over the course of at least this week and next week. But the first one, and then we're going to really unpack it because this is so big that Jesus gives a lot of examples to how to do it. A lot of illustrations of how to do it. But the first point that Jesus makes is that we've got to love persuasively. Now let's read it together. Luke 6, verse 27. And this is Jesus preaching. Many of them, many people call this the Sermon on the Plain. Not the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Plain. And here's what he says, verse 27. Not the plane that flies through the sky, by the way. P-L-A-I-N, a flat level plateau. But I say to you, verse 27, love your enemies. Now stop right there for a minute. In fact, you know what? Let's kind of camp on that for a little bit. Because this is huge. Look how he begins. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies he's directing his sermon to you who hear now what that means is this if you've got ears to hear and let you hear what he means is this if you if you have faith if you begin to receive god's word and begin to believe it begin to trust it it's beginning to work a transforming power in your life then you got ears you can hear you got eyes you can see no one can see no one can hear unless this the Holy Spirit begins to turn on the light and unplug your ears. Before that happens, you hear these words, and while they sound good, they sound moral, they sound... Ethical but they're not life transforming if you want the transforming power of god's word Then your ears have to be made open your eyes have to see So jesus is speaking to those who are beginning or who have already received him by faith But I say to you who hear Love your enemies now, by the way, this is a really good principle if you're ever going to go in the ministry I preach to the believer. I'm preaching to my brothers and sisters. No, I'm trying to cast a big enough net that if you're here this evening, if you're here today, and you're not a believer, then I'm hoping the net of the gospel will catch you up and you'll want to know Jesus. But I'm preaching to the Christian. And I do that week after week after week. My job is to strengthen the faith of the church. And you see this with Jesus. How did I learn to do that? Why do I do that? Well, here's the master teaching us to do this. But I say to you who hear, I say to you who follow me, I say to you who believe, love your enemies. And it cuts across the grain of what our world has preached And even what our world has modeled as well, let me give you an illustration from Joseph Stalin, that, that butcher, that dictator, to choose one's victim, he wrote, to prepare one's plan minutely, to slake an implacable vengeance, and then go to bed, well, there is nothing sweeter in the world. How do you like that statement? To love your enemies goes completely contrary to what this world teaches. And it was little different in the mind ...of the Jew at the time of Christ. In fact, Jesus once said, Matthew 5, this is a sermon on the mount... ...he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy... ...but, and there's a transition word, here's a contrary word... ...but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. You see, the teachers of Judaism had narrowed they had narrowed so severely who it was that they had to love until it only became fellow jews and fellow jews who were walking righteously they took all the law they narrowed it down to you know what we've really only got to love the jew and we've only got to love the jew who's obeying the law In fact, to love a Gentile, a non-Jew, was a sin. They would preach, it's a sin to love a Gentile. The, The most devout sect of the Jews, beyond even the Pharisees, were called the Essenes. And here's what they taught, and I'm quoting from their own writings, love all the sons of light and hate all the sons of darkness. Now listen, this is alive and well at the time of Jesus. This is what's being taught in the synagogue, this is what's being taught in the, in the streets. The Essenes taught everybody to hate all non-Essenes. They taught them to hate the Pharisees, hate the Gentiles, even hate the Zealots. They were, they were fanatical Jews. And the Pharisees, they weren't a whole lot better. Now, you know the Pharisees. You don't know much about the Essenes. They're really not in the Bible that much, but the Pharisees are prominently in the Gospels. They had a saying, they had a saying that went like this, that if a Jew, or if a Gentile fell into the sea, then a devout Jew should not rescue them. If a Gentile, a non-Jew, fell into a sea, a devout Jew should not rescue them. And then you've got the Zealots, they're the extremists, they're Jews on steroids. And there was even a sect among the Zealots called the Sicarii. And the Sicarii had these little short daggers that they would hold under their cloaks. And when they would get into a crowd and there was a Roman guard or there was a Gentile merchant, they would come up behind the merchant in the crowd and they would take that dagger and they would plunge it into the kidneys of that Gentile, pull it out, and then they would flee in the crowd not to be caught. That was happening all over Jerusalem. In fact, the Romans, now listen, I want you to hear this, the Romans in their writings actually accused the Jews of hating the human race. I mean, did you hear that? This is God's people. They accused, the Romans did, the Jews of hating the human race. It was the hatred of the Jews that they had for their enemies that dominated that culture. So here we go. Imagine the shock, the ripple, the earthquake, the tsunami of Christ's sermon as it begins these words. And he says again these words, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. I guess, uh, l- let me try to put it on something equivalent. You ready? Here's here's the best I know to do. I'm gonna give you a few examples of how shocking that would have been. It would be like me telling your pastor telling you to love the drunk who killed your child. It would be, be like me telling you to love the boss who ruined your career or love that relative that abused you. It would be jarring, it would be unsettling, yet it's the very words of Christ. Now are you feeling the weight already starting to come down on your shoulders? You've got to love your enemies. I've got to love my enemies. And by the way, this is what the Old Testament had taught. Here's Proverbs 25. If your enemy is hungry, give him bread to eat. And if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. That's what love looks like when you exercise it toward an enemy. And when the world sees the people of God loving this way, they see the power of God's love. Well, let's take that verse and let's look a little bit deeper, okay? We've really got to get below, the, below the, uh, the, the superficial level of this. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies. What's that mean, love? What kind of love is this? I mean, there were four Greek words for love. You got the, the affectionate feeling love, you've got the intimate sexual love, you've got the brotherly friendship love, but that's not any of those. This is the fourth one. This word is called agapayo. This is the verb form. Agap- agape love is the noun. Agape love in action is agapayo. It's the supernatural deliberate love that's rooted in the will. It's a love that you choose. In fact, uh, Mike Mason, a teacher, said this, agape love is a deep, continuous, growing, and ever-renewing activity of the will superintended by the Holy Spirit. So, so agape love, or love in action, agapeo, is love that you choose because God's poured it into your heart. And you've got it in great supply, and you direct it consciously toward other people. Jesus says, take that love, choose to give it to your enemies. It's a love that says, I will love this person, not because I feel like it, or because that person deserves it, but because God's, by God's grace, that person needs it, therefore I will choose to give it. So Jesus gives this command, this standard of holy love, it's a divine command that you cannot do in your own power. But he never commands us to do what what we must do in our own power. His commands are promises that we can do it only because of the power that he gives. You can do anything that God commands you to do because he promises to give you the power to do it. And you know how he did it? Now I want you to think about this for a second. Christian brother and sister, the moment, the very minute, it happened faster than then electrical charges can go through your brain throughout your body. You touch something that is burning your finger, that goes faster than the speed of light to your brain and back to your finger. I mean, the synaptic process of neurotransmission is mind-boggling. When I learned that in graduate school, and ended up being one of my favorite classes. But listen, faster than that, faster than that, the very moment you put your faith in Jesus, he replaced your heart that was dead. What the Old Testament says was a stony heart. And he put in, into your body a spiritual new heart. A flesh heart. A heart that's alive. Now listen, it gets even better. And in that new heart that's now been made right, been made holy, now comes the Spirit of God that says, I'm going to live there. I'm going to dwell there. I've got the key to there through Christ. I'm going to get there and I'm going to begin pulsing my desires. I'm going to begin giving new desires to you. And those old desires that are contrary to what I like, I'm going to begin stripping them out. Walk with me by my word. Feel, feel your mind with my word will transform your heart more and more i'm give you the power to do everything i'm commanding so if you read jesus who says love your enemies and do good to them who curse you then then the spirit of god or who hate you the spirit of god saying listen we can do this together and i know we can do it together because jesus already did it And what Jesus already did, you can now do because the Spirit of God lives inside. You see, when you're born again, you receive, Peter says, God's divine power, which has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, and we now become partakers, this is mind-boggling, of the divine nature, the very nature of God, we begin to participate in it. In other words, we get to have it. We get it pouring into our lives. We get to have it pouring out of our lives, the very nature of God. So a disciple of Christ is one who has received his grace of salvation through faith in Christ. He's being taught, she's being taught and strengthened to live out what God commands. I like what Ironside once said, the late commentator he says when we are born from above we, re- we receive the nature which is divine and so are enabled in our measure to walk in love toward all men no matter how injurious or hateful their behavior toward us may be loving our enemies was so profoundly different from what the jews had been taught that jesus now gives several examples and we're going to look at them and this is where it's going to get hard Let's look at it together. Look at the first one. Do good to those who hate you. I want you to read it again. Do good to those who hate you. It's important to note the context. You got to look at the context. You know, I don't know what you do. If If you're of the habit of, you know, you take your Bible in the morning. I always recommend in the morning to have your quiet time with the Lord. You need the power to live in God's strength throughout the day, right? If you're like me. In the morning, I laid my request before you, David prayed, and I looked throughout the day, waiting in expectation. So I encourage you, get in the morning. But if you're, if you're in the habit of getting up in the morning, God, I don't know what I want to read today. Uh, let's see, what, what looks interesting to me okay here's psalm 139 verse 15 my frame was not hidden from you when i was being made in secret intricately woven in the depths of the earth and and that's like cracking open that cookie at the chinese buffet and all of a sudden you're trying to see is this a fortune for me listen that's not the approach don't use that approach that will not help you grow in christ You've got to be a student of God's word. And when you read God's word, you just can't start with whatever catches your eye. You're going to lose the context. You've got to get the context of the passage. And we've got to do that today as well. So it's important to use, to to note the context of what Jesus is about to teach. Where is it? Look at verse 22 of Luke chapter 6. This is important. Blessed are you when people hate you. And when they exclude you, you ever been excluded? Not invited to a party? And revile you and spurn your name as evil. Now here's the context. On account of the Son of Man. So this is now spiritual persecution. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. So what we're going to learn is all about spiritual persecution this is when you love the enemies of christ who have now made you their enemy as well how do you love those kind of enemies do you have somebody that hates you you know i do i've had people that have uh told me that they have no respect for me and promised me that they never would I actually have, a week after my dad died, I had a person right after church take me around the corner of the church and and say with her husband right there, I have no respect for you, Pastor Tim, and I never will. Now that stings. But it's gotten worse. <laughs> it's the life of a pastor. This is fun, right? You only work a half a day, you get persecuted the other six and a half. It's great. Do you have anybody who, who hates you? Do you have anybody who dislikes you? Do you remember that we saw that Christ's disciples are to hate their fathers and mothers? You remember that sermon? This was about five weeks ago. You've got to hate your mothers, your fathers, your children, as Luke 14 explained. You remember that? Now listen, there we saw that that word hate means to love less. In other words, you've got to love your father, your mother, your sisters, your brothers, your children less than you love Christ, or you cannot be his disciple. You've got to love Christ more than anyone if you're going to be his disciple. But here, hate... Means something different. Look at what it says. But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you. That's not do good to those who love you less than Jesus. That would be kind of noble. This word hate means something different. It means ill will or it means a persecuting spirit. This is somebody who purposefully and with intention wants to bring you ill will. They are against you. When someone hates you, or when someone hates me because of our Christian faith, Jesus says we've got to do good to them. Now, if you look back to verse 26, we should know that the very same exact word for good, now, I don't know if you do this, I I would underline this in your Bible. This is how you learn, underline and write in the margin. But the very word in verse 26 For good was translated there as well. So the word well in verse 26 is the same Greek word for good in verse 27. And there it serves as a negative example, verse 26, of flattering and unkind words. Or flattering and kind words, I should say. To do good to those who hate you is to refuse to treat them badly, but to treat them well in a way that's going to benefit them, edify them, build them up, lift them up. Now listen, here, let's get really honest for a second. Let's say you've got somebody who hates you, has ill will toward you. co worker, neighbor, could be a spouse, could be a family member. But they are against you, and it seems like it's their purpose in life to bring you down. Jesus says, if you're going to love persuasively, love in such a way as you can fulfill the greatest job on earth, making disciples, and listen, you've got to learn to do good to them. You've got to learn to return kindness to them. You've got to learn to lift them up, even though they're trying to tear you down. So already we see... That you and I, Christian brother, we've got to love persuasively. This is not an option. This is not Jesus saying, listen, if you get around to it, try to learn to love your enemies, those who hate you. Do your, do your very best. Do you know the word try you cannot find in the Bible by way of effort living out the Christian life? You cannot find it. You'll never see Jesus say, you know what, try to do this. Commands are all in or all out. You're either doing it or you're not. You're obeying or you're disobeying. This is a command. He says, do good to those who hate you. And then he gives another example. Because already the crowd's going, no way. I cannot love my enemies. I'm not even taught to do that. How do I love the people who hate me? Well, Jesus says, secondly, you've got to bless those who curse you. That word bless means to speak well of another when we bless God, we are speaking well of God. When you bless somebody else, when you tell somebody they blessed you that meant that they spoke well of you or they did something that 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 meant well to you. So the word bless means to speak well, of another curse means to speak evil of another. It means to speak against someone. So here it is, just boil it down to this. Blessing is speaking for, cursing is speaking against. Bless those who curse you. Speak for those who speak against you. It doesn't mean the word curse like it's some sort of hex or incantation or spell. It means to be spoken against by someone with an evil purpose. Have you ever been cursed or reviled because you're a Christian? I have. I had someone just yelling obscenities at me when they knew I was a Christian. I walked away, and the entire time until I got away from the sound of their voice, they continued to revile me. They continued to, to revile Christ. It, they went hand in hand. The guy was swearing horribly to Jesus and swearing horribly to me. Listen, if you hear that someone has gossiped and slandered you, And then you see them at church, or then you see them in your neighborhood, or then you see them in a work meeting. Jesus says, speak to them in a way that will bless them, that will lift them up. You will love persuasively, and people will know that you belong to me. You see this love in action. You remember when Jesus, he's crucified... He's hanging on the cross. He's nailed there, a nail through his left wrist, a nail through his right wrist, a nail through both feet. And the only way that Jesus can speak is if he pushes up with his feet and he pulls up with his hands. That's it. That's it. You can only speak when air is being forced out of your trachea. And the only way you can breathe On the cross is by lifting up. You can't. You have to relax your diaphragm, and so Jesus goes through all that pain to to say these words: "Father, forgive them." Who's them? Them are the ones who are killing him. Them are the ones that are literally putting their thumb below their nose and doing this. That's literally what the the, the chief priests were doing as they rode by Jesus, as they walked by Jesus, as he is lifted up from the earth, dying. They are reviling him. They are taunting him. The soldiers are gambling away his clothes. They're spitting on him. They're telling him, come down if you're God. Show your power. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Bless those who curse you. Friends, if we cannot do this, then we are not loving persuasively. And he goes on, it gets heavier and it gets heavier. Pray for those who abuse you. Modern dictionaries define abuse as to treat in a harmful, injurious, or offensive way. But the word abuse here, not too different. The word abuse here was understood as despitefully using someone or falsely accusing a person. So despitefully using or falsely accusing, that's what that abuse means. It means to be taken advantage of. And it's, in a lot of ways, maybe by being underpaid for work that you've done, by being underloved, even though you serve faithfully, being made the scapegoat or any other number of painful actions against you. Listen, Jesus says, pray for those who abuse you. You know, people who abuse others, and we've we've got people that have been abusers in our church. So I want you to hear this people who abuse others It's their aim to so deeply weaken and shame them that they are utterly controllable That's what abuse does It's to weaken and shame a person so that they are utterly controllable And when they do this, now listen, how do you know what abuse is because our world cries abuse for everything? Well, part of what gets to what abuse is, is when you do something that purposefully and intentionally destroys the image of God in another human being. When you begin to destroy and reduce the image of God, that is abusive action that is meant to demean and demoralize and strip God's image from them so they are utterly too weak to rise up and be uncontrollable. I read a story, and I hope it's fictitious, of a couple who got married back in the horse and buggy days, and they rode off on their honeymoon, and the horse bolted, and the guy said, that's one. And the horse bolted again, and he said, that's two. And the horse bolted yet again, and he said, that's three. And then he took out his gun, and he killed the horse. And his wife said, that's terrible, you can't do that. And he said to her, that's one. Listen, the response to abuse in most of us. Now listen, you got to hear this because this is true of most of us. When we feel that we've been abused or when we love somebody that's been abused, we want to all of a sudden call down imprecatory prayers. Those are the kind of prayers that you say, Lord, let that person get a taste of his own medicine. Let that person get fired for what she did to me. Let that driver who just cut me off get pulled over by a cop. This is what we do. Those are imprecatory prayers. God, administer your judgment right now. But Jesus tells us that if you're going to love persuasively, you can't pray like that. You've got to have a love that is, that's going to say, that's going to pray for those who abuse you. Pray kindness and goodness and that God would deliver them. Don't ask others to do the praying for you. You've got to pray. You, the victim, prays for the one who abuses you. That doesn't mean, listen, that doesn't mean if you're in an abusive relationship, That you allow it to continue. And it doesn't mean that you stay silent hitting the mute button. And it doesn't mean that you don't contact the authorities. That's why God has given us the law. That's what the police are for. They are impartial justice givers. That's what they're for. They're not there to have empathy. Listen, if you think that that police officer that pulls you over, that you can somehow Get their empathy to let, get you off that ticket. You don't understand the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law is impassionate. It's supposed to be that way. When it becomes passionate and empathetic, then it becomes out of bounds. You can't keep it just. It won't stay true and consistent. It's grace that has empathy. It's God's people that has, that have empathy. So call the authorities. That's what they're for. Listen, I always tell people this. If you're being abused, call the police. That's the arm of God's justice. They will do their job. You pray that God will help them do their job. But it doesn't mean either that you allow your hatred to to fill up your heart and harden it. And to prevent that, listen, you got to hear this. If you want to keep a heart from hardening, you begin to pray for God's grace. For the person who's hurt you. But how do you act toward that person who has abused you? And now you get to see two examples that Jesus gives. Look what it says. To one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other cheek also. Now I would dare you to be honest with me as I would dare my own self and tell me if that is truly how you feel. We got a lot of people in this church that have carry conceal. I can imagine what they're going to go through. What they're thinking if somebody punches them. This, this word strike. Well, listen, there was a contemptuous Far Eastern and Middle Eastern slap. It was the back of the hand. But this is the right cheek. This is the jawbone. This is a punch, not a humiliating slap. This is somebody who has punched you. And again, the context, verse 22 and 23, this is religious persecution. They hate you because you love Jesus. And they punch you. And in the tense of the Greek, now listen, in the tense of the Greek, it's not a one punch and you're done. It's a repeated punch. And Jesus says, do not hit back. Do not engage in a duel of threats or insults. Do not retaliate. Do not take revenge. Because persuasive love that would draw the world to Christ is a love full of blessing, full of self-control, and full of peace in all situations. If need be, ready yourself for another blow by turning the other cheek. But do not invite it. Do not invite it. Well, how do you know that? It seems like Jesus says to invite it. Well, let's take the example. Listen, everything that Jesus says for us to do, Jesus modeled. He exemplified it. And he was struck in the face at his illegal trial, and he did not turn his head so the other side could be hit. And he did not ask to be struck again, but neither did he lash out in anger or revenge or in precatory praying. Listen, we've got to look carefully at this, because Jesus is not meaning here that you're never to defend yourself. Turning the other cheek does not mean a wife must silently endure the abuse of a husband or a child, the abuse of an, of an adult. Biblical love does not mean being a doormat. It doesn't command or create a doctrine of non-resistance like some Christian churches have. Jesus told his disciples, Luke 22, purchase a sword for protection. If they didn't have one, in today's modern language, if Jesus said it today, he'd say, hey, anybody have a handgun? If you don't, go get one. John the Baptist did not forbid men to be soldiers, or police officers, or military, or military soldiers today. Just don't abuse your authority, he told them. This is all about how God's people are to respond to abuse that has come because of your faith with a persuasive love that will not demand retaliation, will not take revenge from a hateful heart. He gives another example. And from one who takes away your cloak, verse 29, do not withhold your tunic either. How many coats do you own? Let's, let's get a little of a, let's get some audience participation here how many of you have more than one coat raise your hand okay virtually everybody how many of you have more than 10 coats raise your hand well i don't think i have that many i'm just raising my hand but probably close but i don't have that many all right so almost all of us if not all of us have more than one coat by the way years ago when we were moving from our our um townhouse to our home in forks we were showing the home real estate stuff and they kept saying you got to have a, a nearly empty home to show your home so i i boxed up a lot of my clothes and i brought them to our march street campus and put them on the third floor i said i'll go get them after we can sell this house and we move into our other one and before i could go get them i come down to our monday night ministry and i'm seeing some guy wearing a dallas cowboys coat and i'm going yeah, that's my coat then I found out Pastor Tim, who has a heart of Montana, the size of Montana, saw all these clothes up in the third floor of the parsonage and said, hey, I'm going to take them to Riverside. We'll give them out to everybody. So some of you might be wearing my clothes. <laughs> and I know I had underwear in them. <laughs> Enjoy. Listen, we all got more than one coat. At least most of us do. So look what he says. And from one who takes away your cloak... Do not withhold your tunic also. You know, most people at the time of Jesus, unless you had money, there was only the wealthy class and then the poor. There was no middle class. So almost all the people, because the majority were in the poor class, had one cloak. That's it. They had one cloak. And that's what they wore for a coat. And it served as a blanket when they slept. Listen, in Jerusalem, it snows. In Jerusalem, it gets cold. You want to know what the climate is like in Jerusalem? Then go visit San Diego if you can't get to Jerusalem. It's almost identical. There is snow in the mountains. And in the winter, it gets cold. So you've got to have your coat. It was so important that the law of Moses and Exodus required that, listen, if you're going to take somebody's coat, cloak, to hold over them so that they repay the money you loaned them you got to give it back to them before the sun goes down it was illegal to keep their cloak overnight and then you'd get it back in the morning but one of the early way, one of the ways that the early Christians were being persecuted because of their faith in Jesus was to have their cloaks taken and they were never returned and the climate is cold and if they if they If they go now to take your shirt, Jesus says, give them your shirt also. Look what it says. From one who who takes away your cloak, do not withhold your tunic either. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying, listen, don't retaliate. Don't hate. Don't let your heart get hardened. Bless. Even if it costs you something, you've got to be blessing other people. You might have somebody who hates what you believe about protecting the unborn. Anti-abortion beliefs, you might have somebody that hates you, argues with you. I have somebody that is a friend of mine that says, listen, unless you're a woman and you've been pregnant, you have no right to tell a woman they can't abort their baby. And I'm saying, are you crazy? He cannot stand it when I say that, when we talk about protecting the rights of the unborn. So you might have somebody that hates you because of that. You might have somebody that hates you because you're telling them that, listen, marriage is only, in God's eyes, between a man and a woman. There is no sanctified marriage between two men. There is no sanctified marriage between two women. God will not allow it. He will not bless it. And people can get hostile toward you. But you've got to love them. You've got to not tolerate their sin. But you've got to love them persuasively. And listen, the best way you love them is by speaking truth and demonstrating it in action. And then Jesus gives our fourth example. Give to everyone who begs from you. And listen, this is getting harder. And from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Have you ever felt guilty when a beggar asks you for money and you say no? No. Doesn't, isn't it torturous? I mean, you, you kind of want to if you've got the money with you. you want to, but then you're afraid they're going to misuse it, and a lot of times they will. And they'll go out and buy cigarettes. They'll go out and buy liquor. So you don't want to give them cash. But then on the other hand, you don't want to. You kind of want to be like Jesus to them. But the word begs here in verse thirty. It's not an appeal from a beggar or a a panhandler or a con man. It's rather a request from someone you know who has a legitimate need. But they will probably take advantage of your generosity. Look what it says. Give to everyone who begs from you and from one who takes away your goods. Do not demand them back. Listen, give even if you think you're not going to get it back. Or if they do give it back, it might not be in the same condition it was in. There's something in us that reacts to this and says, No, I cannot do this. I'm not going to give to somebody that will not give it back. Fool me once, shame on you, right? Fool me twice, shame on me. That's how we operate. Yet some of us are so worried about being taken advantage of, you never lend anything. But isn't it the very nature, now listen, you got to hear this, isn't it the very nature of grace to give with no regard to the merit of the person, to give with no regard of whether it will ever be repaid? Isn't that what grace does? Isn't that what God has poured out so lavishly on us? I mean, haven't we received from God what we have not deserved? And haven't we received from God more than we'll ever, ever be able to pay back? See, persuasive love is saturated by the same grace and it will amaze the world when you give from somebody who has a legitimate need even though they may take advantage of you. You should give, I should give. And then he goes on in the fifth one and it's going to get heavier. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. It's the golden rule. But there's something interesting about it. Not anyone before Christ ever spoke it like this. It was always in the negative form. It always went like this. One rabbi, Hillel, he was famous in Jesus' day. What is hateful to you, do not do. Do not to another. That is the whole law and all else is explanation. He he put it in the negative form. In other words, if you don't like it, then don't do it. It's... Kind of like love on the defense all the time. Philo, the famous Jew of Alexandria, he was a philosopher. He said, what you hate to suffer, do not do to anyone else. Listen, every time you see the golden rule before Christ, it's always, literally every time in the negative form. Jesus puts it in the positive form and says, as you wish that others would do to you, you do it to them. Do it what you want others to do to you. If you want others to talk well of you, then talk well of others. If you want them to show respect to you, then show respect to others. The Christian loves when he or she does more than just refrain from bad things to people, but actively does good in loving things for other people. That's persuasive love. The world thinks in the negative. Christ said you've got to think in the positive, positive," and then he gives the sixth Lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. The first one was give. Now he's saying lend. And he reminds his audience of what his main point is, which is a true disciple must have a persuasive love. And persuasive love loves our enemies. And sometimes those enemies are others who just want to take and use us. He had just told them that lending to those you know will repay you is something that unbelievers do, but there's nothing distinctive about that, nothing that points to God's grace of unmerited favor. The world loves like this. His disciples, us, we're to live by grace, the power to overlook sin and love the undeserved. So let's slow down and let's read that. Let's get into it. Verse 33, and if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? The world does this. There's nothing distinctive. For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. You may suffer loss on this life, on this planet, but in heaven, your reward will be great. This is a persuasive love. And you know what Jesus does? This is what good preaching does, by the way. Honestly, it's one of the ways you can evaluate our preaching here. Do we summarize well? Do we close well? Clearly, this is what Jesus does as he's preaching. He is summarizing all of what he just said about love your enemies. But love your enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend. He just summarized it up. And expect nothing in return. And your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Now, some people read this, that if you love persuasively, you're going to get saved, and you'll be sons of the Most High. You've got to earn your salvation, But the truth is, no one is reborn into the family of God. No one is adopted by the Heavenly Father by keeping this sermon. Now look at me for a second because I'm almost done. Let me take that even further. No one can keep this sermon unless they're reborn. Unless you've got a new heart. That has the Holy Spirit dwelling in it that is partnering with you and you are divine partakers of the divine nature. Listen, you cannot live this kind of love. You cannot be persuasive. You cannot fulfill the great commission unless the Spirit of God lives in you and you begin to walk in obedience with him. And if you do, then Galatians 5 all of a sudden begins to ring clear for the fruit of the Spirit is love joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Why? Because the Spirit of God has found a heart that he could produce persuasive love because he found a Christian that said, I won't love like the world, I will love like Christ. And I will obey his words. If you have been born again, then you must love like this. I must love like this. For the disciple of Christ is the child of the Heavenly Father who is kind to the ungrateful and the evil, it says. This is how God is. He's kind to the ungrateful. I can't stand ungrateful people, to be honest with you. They drive me crazy. If you want to know what's the hardest kind of person for you to love, Pastor Tim, I'm going to tell you, it is people whom I give a lot to and sacrifice a lot for who are utterly ungrateful. I cannot stand it. Yet the Spirit of God must produce in me a persuasive love so that I love like Jesus, who love like his Father. Friends, to love our enemies and, to, and do good is to love persuasively. Do you love like that? If yes, then thank God because it's His grace. It's His grace that has helped you do that. It's not your effort. It's not you getting up in the morning with some kind of determined unction that you're going to live like this. It is the power of God displaying Himself through you. That is grace. So if you do love like this, thank God. And if you're learning to love like this, thank God. It's his grace. But if you don't love like this, listen, if you're driving down Route 78 and somebody cuts off in front of you and you cannot wait for them to get in an accident, you hope that you drive by them getting their ticket. Listen, that's not persuasive love. The father sees it and he's correcting it. The Christian has to love better than the world. And if you're having trouble with that, then listen, here's what you do. You plead for the grace of God, you repent, you confess, and you ask God to help you love like Jesus. But it is not possible unless you are born again. Unless you have placed your faith in the Son of God to save you from your sins and to give you eternal life. And listen, I'm going to start back at the beginning of the sermon. If you have prayed that, then faster than the synaptic neurotransmission of your brain... Faster than lightning and faster than light, Jesus Christ takes your old heart and he takes it out of your life and he puts a new one in it. And that heart now says, you know what? It's a good place for the spirit to dwell. So read from my word, learn, let that power go in your mind, down in your heart and let me energize it and give you the grace to love like Jesus because that's persuasive love and that's what will save this world. Amen.